going to turn to Isaiah 11 this morning. Isaiah 11. It seems that there's a deep longing in almost every human heart for an ideal society. Isn't there? There's something deep down within us that longs for that. I think that's why there are so many organizations, international organizations dedicated to trying to bring peace in the world. And however misguided these organizations may be on a fundamental level, they are nevertheless testimony to the innate hope that is within the human breast for that kind of world, a kind of world full of peace and justice. There is in, I think, humanity's ancient collective consciousness, the memory of Eden, which is part of why humanity is incurably religious, because there is no Eden where there is no God. There is a wistfulness for a place that's characterized by love and joy and peace justice and truth for a leader who can bring us into a place like that, who's got the the skill and the discernment and the character, the ability to be able to establish and to maintain such a paradise. And of course, that's not what Israel and Judah experienced in their day. Their leaders were far from the ideal leaders and their lands were far from the ideal lands. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called uh, Samaria or Ephraim, the kings of the north were universally wicked and the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah, were a mixed bag, but increasingly ungodly and inept. The nations all around Israel and Judah were um, wicked beyond them. And so through Isaiah, God prophesied in that ancient day some great judgments that would come. Great judgments that would come on all of the kingdoms of men. And we're going to read over the, about those over the next few weeks, we're going to go through some really sobering passages of Scripture together. And God even said about His his own people, the people of Israel, that He would cut off the majority of Israel by these great judgments and really just leave a kind of stump of the people left. But out of that stump, He prophesied, there would come forth a, a shoot, a bud. And that bud would grow into a healthy and fruitful branch. And his kingdom would flourish again, like the Garden of Eden where God walked in the midst of men. That would be the case once again among the kingdom of God's people. That's the promise that's being held out for the encouragement of the believing remnant among those people. And we looked at this beginning last week, and we saw in verses 1 through 5, the king, this ideal king, who is this branch who would grow up and bear fruit. Let's just read it again to 
get back into this glorious text. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What a king that was prophesied. And I'm sure that the people were wondering, when will this king come? And every new king that was raised up, you know, generation after generation, will this be finally the king that we're waiting for? And then in verses 6 to 9, we get a glimpse of his kingdom. We move from the king to the kingdom. We read these words about the nature of his kingdom in verses 6 through 9. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. (laughs) What a kingdom this is. I mean, this is a most unusual description of the kingdom. And you know, the world around us holds on to the idea, this notion that utopia can be created through governmental policies or through economic incentives or through educational programs, or through scientific advancements. And every one of those things is, of course, intensely important and should be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the kingdom that Isaiah envisions is created by the radical transformation of nature. I mean, the natures of the kingdom citizens are transformed. The lion becomes a vegan, right? This is the nature of this kingdom. And so let us, us who rightly seek for God's law to be the law of the land, let us, though, never lose sight that law is not ultimate. Whether it's the Supreme Court and the judgments that come from that body or state pieces of state legislation, or whatever it is. Transformation of the human heart by gospel grace is what's ultimate. And the ultimate form of this kingdom is populated by a people who, are, who have miraculously 
transformed natures. This is the kingdom that's being envisioned. And now, in verse 10, this brings us to our text for today, which is, verse 10 really is a transition. And it's going to link King David, who was the dominant historical figure in verses 1 through 9, right, the son of Jesse, it's going, this verse 10 is going to link King David in verses 1 to 10 with Moses and Joshua in verses 11 through 16. And it's going to link these two by way of the concept of rest. You see in verse 10 the words resting place or rest? That again is the concept which links these two David and, and, uh, and Solomon on the one hand, and Moses and Joshua on the other. And uh, in fact, this concept itself has echoes of Eden, right? In the beginning, God created everything. And at the end of six days, God looked at it and it said it was, he said it was good. And on the seventh day, God what? God rested. And then he installed Adam in that place of rest to rule over it. So now... Isaiah foresees a new and global rest under a new Adam, under a new David, and under a new Joshua. And what Isaiah foresees, this kingdom that he foresees in his vision, in in verses 11 through 16, uh, we see the scope of that kingdom beginning in verse 10, actually, verse 10 to 16, the scope of this kingdom. That's what I want to show you today. Look at verse 10 together then. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let me point a few things out to you about this verse. 10 and 11 are kind of the central verses here, and everything kind of builds off of them. First of all, this figure that is coming to create this kingdom of, of really, I've said, global scope, is called in verse 10 the what? The root of Jesse. Now, remember back in verse 1? Look at, well, look at what he's called up there. He is the shoot from Jesse, and now he is the root of Jesse. In other words, this person, whoever he is going to be, is going to be the root of his own family tree, so to speak. And in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, this person speaks, and here's what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And of course, this is none other than our Lord Jesus. And the New Testament intentionally traces his lineage back to David. He's a son of David, a descendant of David. Paul said he is the son of David as preached in my gospel. But like Jesus said about Abraham, before he was... I am. And so it is true with David. He is both the shoot 
from Jesse and the root of David's line as well. And when this person comes, when the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, the Bible says here in verse 10 that he will be a signal, right? You see that word? Or a banner for the peoples. He will be a standard. You know, a standard in the military is this, uh, in the old days, this flag that was hoisted really high so that everybody on the battlefield could see the flag and so that they could rally around it Everybody would know where they were to go and knew that the cause stood firm. This is what the Lord Jesus will be. When God sends him into the world, he will be lifted up as the banner or the ensign or the standard to rally around. And verse 10 tells us who will rally around him. Who is that? The peoples, right? Plural. The peoples and the what? The nation. The goyim, the Gentiles, the the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 15, and he says, listen, this is being fulfilled in my own day, through my own ministry. God is raising up Jesus Christ as this standard. And all of the peoples of the world, the Gentiles, are rallying around him. This is an amazing thing. David, this shoot of David, this offspring of David, this root of David would be lifted up and draw all peoples to himself. And the Lord had prophesied this about David back in Psalm 18, or David had said this as a prophet. In verse 43, David said about the Lord, you made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. And of course, this is, a, this is now the great fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who will be lifted up and draw all nations to himself. And just like David, the Messiah will bring rest. Right? For it was King David who took dominion over Israel's enemies. We read about that, um, or we've read about it as we read through our scriptures. He conquered the Philistines. We, of course, know the famous story of David and Goliath, right? We, David was, uh, did war and, and took dominion over the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And just before God made a covenant with him, God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, that the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemy. David brought what to the people of, to the nation of Israel? He brought rest. Rest from all of these plaguing enemies. Now they were able to be at rest. And of his son, of David's son, it is said in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. For I will give him rest from his surrounding enemies, and his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his days, and he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. And it's the concept of rest that is a deep and powerful theological current that runs through all of the Scripture. And here, it links David and Solomon 
to earlier figures in Israel's history, namely Moses and Joshua, as we'll see in the next verses as they continue to unfold. They also, Moses and Joshua, also brought God's people into dominion over the land of promise, right? And gave them rest. Joshua chapter 21 says it this way, verse 43, Then the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he has sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. So here's now David, Solomon, and on the other hand, Moses and Joshua, both leading God's people to take dominion over the land and finally receive the rest that they longed for and that they hoped for and that they waited for. This now will be, in Isaiah's vision, the work of the Messiah who would come. And in particular, Isaiah foresees the Messiah's work as a new exodus, calling people out of slavery and into the promised land. In verse 11, we see now this begin to unfold as we continue to try to see the scope of this kingdom. Look at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Do you remember that phrase from a couple of chapters ago? The the Lord's hand is stretched out still. What, What was that a reference to? 18 times it was used in the context of the bringing of the people out of Egypt into uh, the promised land. And and other times it was used in reference to that. This This is an exodus term. And it's a clear allusion to the exodus when we get later on in this chapter as well in verse 15. Moses, remember, stretched out his hand. He stretched out his rod. And what happened when he did? Oh, plagues, right? Frogs and locusts and boils and death. But also, it ultimately brought deliverance for the people, for God's true people. They brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, in Isaiah's day, then, he's incorporating all of this imagery to say that God is going to bring a judgment, and His judgment is going to fall on the whole earth. And in particular, it's going to fall on His people, upon Israel and upon Judah, and they will be taken away into captivity, and they'll be scattered across the face of the planet. But he sees, he foresees in God's mercy, a new exodus, if you will, from slavery, from slavery. Look at the middle of verse 11. And he will extend his hand yet a second time, like the Exodus being the first, he's going to extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, where they were taken into captivity, and from Egypt and from Pathros, which is southern Egypt, where Of course, some exiles were uh, taken, like Jeremiah. And from Cush, which is Ethiopia, and uh, kind of getting ahead of ourselves, you remember the Ethiopian from Acts, the book of Acts, and how he came into the kingdom of Christ. 
And he says they will, he will call them from Elam and from Shinar, which are both in Babylon, which of course is where Judah was in captivity, and from Hamath in the north, and from the coastlands of the sea, which is far out to the west, those far-flung islands of the Mediterranean. And this promise is one of return from captivity that would give the believing remnant hope in their many, many years of exile. And yet the language, the terminology, and the extent of this new exodus from all of these places of the earth seems kind of overblown. It really, you could say in a way that it refers to the return from exile in Assyria and Babylon primarily, but it seems grander than that, right? From the islands of the sea, from the far-flung corners of the north, right? And so all of this now is, is, is at work in Isaiah's vision, and it's brought together, I think, in verse 12. Verse number 12, we really have these threads begin to come together. And it says there, that he will raise a signal for the what? For the goyim, for the Gentiles, for those nations of the, of the earth. He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. So in other words, this, what, we, what Isaiah is foreseeing now, is a gathering together of both Jew and Gentile of both Israel and Judah, and not only from Assyria and from Babylon and from the nearby scattered countries where they were, but look at the end of the verse. He's going to gather them from the what? From the four corners of the earth. I mean, everywhere you go on the face of this planet, he's going to be bringing in people in this great ingathering, this great new exodus, bringing them out of this slavery under his judgment and bringing them into the land of promise, the land of rest, where his Messiah will finally lead them to have dominion over all of the enemies that have plagued them all their lives and brought them into the joy and the peace of God's very presence. That's what Isaiah foresees. This is tremendous in its scope. And the people that he brings into that land, again, will be a transformed people. Look at verse 13. Here now we see in human flesh what we sort of saw Uh, under the image of the animal kingdom in the earlier verses, verse 13, and the jealousy of Ephraim, which I think refers to Judah's jealousy of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. And then on the other side, Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah either. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim. (laughs) There is an incredible transformation that has taken place. Remember, of course, the deep division between these two parts of the country. I mean, they they came into existence uh, through a bloody civil war, right? And what will be the case when God brings his Messiah 
and calls his people from the four corners of the earth, they are going to be transformed in their very natures. They're not even going to be jealous of each other anymore. Talk about the wolf lying down with the lamb and the calf with the lion. Here we see it taking place in human flesh. And and so don't miss then the scope of what's going on here. I have to describe it this way. All right, I'm going, to try, I'm going to try to describe it in four stages that build on each other coming right from this text. And in the first place, I think we'd have to say that what Isaiah foresees is a unified global gathering of transformed Jews and Gentiles, right? A unified global in-gathering of people from every tribe and nation together with the people of Israel. Those who were enemies, now together, Jew and Gentile, Israel and Judah, gathered from the four corners of the globe in perfectly united and uniform uh, kingdom. That's really, you have to say, transformed by grace. I mean, how else do you get someone to stop being jealous or envious? There's a lot of things you can make people do externally, right? Just with law. You can make them conform upon penalty of whatever. Isn't that true? Yeah? You have kids, you know, sometimes they're being good because they're under threat. But here is a people who are transformed in their very natures. They're transformed in their very heart of hearts. What an incredible thing this is. This is the Messiah's reign. And we see secondly then that, it will, that they will be gathered together in order to take full dominion of the promised land, to come into full possession of their rest. Like Joshua who led Israel's conquest of Canaan under the Messiah, we read in verse 14, under the Messiah, we read that they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east, which is to say, they shall put their hands, uh, they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will obey them. So here again, we have a link between David, who subdued these very peoples, and Joshua, who would do the same as we read earlier in the service in Exodus chapter 15. All of these historical links are really expounded and applied by the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in what is a beautiful piece of biblical theology, tracing the storyline of the Scripture and the, the interconnected threads. And here's the way... He writes in chapter 4. We're not going to read it now. We'll read it in the afternoon service, actually, Lord willing. Adam, in the very beginning, remember in the Garden of Eden? Adam failed to take dominion in the garden and to find ultimate rest in that land. Joshua, though he brought Israel into the land of rest, yet didn't give the people ultimate rest. And in fact, though he brought them into rest, yet still it's an unrestful rest because they're still plagued by the peoples around them to some degree. 
And David, King David, although God gave him, quote, rest on every side, didn't yet give the ultimate rest to the people of God, for their natures were still unchanged. And he spoke, even in his own writings, David, about a rest for the people of God that was yet to come. So all of these things are are foreshadowings, but none of them is the reality, the writer of Hebrews says. We do not come to the reality until we come ultimately to Jesus, the Messiah, who will bring his people into their promised rest. It is Jesus, friends. It is Jesus who defeated all of our enemies once for all on the cross. And it is Jesus who gives us the experience of the victory of his death in an unfolding way over the course of our lives. It is Christ who transforms our natures in regeneration and in the course of our sanctification. And it is Christ who must reign until he puts what? All his enemies under his feet. And one day, his people then will experience complete transformation and restoration and glorification because of what he is, who he is, and what he does. What Adam failed to do, what what Moses and Joshua were not able to do in any ultimate sense, what David and Solomon never reached in the pinnacle of their reigns, will be realized in the reign of Jesus Christ who brings us, friends, out of our slavery of sin and into his own kingdom. People are brought into joyful submission to him through the gospel or they are brought into reluctant submission to him through his judgment. So, I want to tell you this morning, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But, (laughs) blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen? Amen. What a blessing we have. And thirdly, we see in verses 15 and 16 that this kingdom will be built through a new global exodus. This is what we've been, I've been alluding to all along. Now we see verse 15, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, which is probably a reference to that gulf of the, the, the Red Sea, the gulf of Suez that sticks up closest to Egypt, which is probably that body of water that was crossed by Moses and the people of Israel. The Lord will destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, like Joshua standing at the river Jordan parted so the people could come across into the land of rest, into the promised land. Only in Isaiah's day, that would have most immediately called to mind the Euphrates River, which was the boundary between where God's people were going to end in exile, the people of Israel, people of Judah, and where the promised land was. 
He will, as he says in verse 15, wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. So it's just a trickle, as it were, and he will lead people across in sandals. And verse 16, and there shall be a highway from Assyria, the place of bondage, for the remnant that remains of his people, for there as there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So Isaiah is saying that the Exodus under Moses was a pattern that points to the return of God's people from exile, which in turn points to the ingathering of all of the nations into Christ's kingdom at his first coming. And in turn, I think, speaks to us of our eternal rest when his coming is revealed in his second coming. And when all of these things happen, what do we say? How do we respond? People who truly have experienced this kind of deliverance, I mean, deliverance from slavery, deliverance from absolute bondage to sin, and have been brought from death into life, have been brought into the land of rest, of knowing Christ, and of seeing Christ continually conquering their enemies and live in the promise that one day all that was bought by His blood will in fact be theirs. People who who experience that, who know that, they cannot help but sing. And that's exactly what happened when Israel was led across the Jordan, rather when they were led through the Red Sea. We read it earlier this morning, the song of Moses and of Miriam, right? They had to break forth into song. You experience that kind of deliverance and you just have to praise God. And that's, of course, exactly what we see here as well. In chapter 12, we have a poem, a song of praise to God for this great new exodus, this deliverance out of slavery and into the kingdom of the Lord's Christ. Just as Moses and Miriam sang, Israel will sing when God delivers them from captivity and all of God's people today sing about how Christ has delivered us from sin and death and brings us into the land of paradise, both now and in the age to come. And so verse 12, chapter 12 and verse 1, let's sing this song together with these people. Verse 1, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. That's the gospel right there. God, who was once angry with you, has now been propitiated. His anger has been satisfied. And now, all He has for you is mercy and grace and deliverance. And of course, there are echoes of, of, of the Exodus in this as well. For what was it that happened to finally deliver God's people from Egypt? It was an act of God's Wrath. It was an act of God's judgment. Remember, God sent His angel of death across that land to bring death upon all sinners. And the firstborn in every home would die. It was a night, I'm sure, that was permanently etched in the memories of those people 
for generations to come. It was a night of horror and bloodshed and wailing. But the Lord, in his mercy, gave to his people a substitute. Rather than blood being shed among them, they were to take a lamb. Remember this? They were to take this lamb and to kill that lamb and to take the blood from that lamb and to put it on the entrance of their house. And when the Lord, by his angel, saw the blood, he would what? He would pass over them. And ever after, the people of God celebrated the Passover. When the Lord relinquished his anger and gave, poured it out on a substitute instead, while yet his anger did come upon all of those who were not his. And that is the story of the gospel, really. The wrath of God, satisfied by the righteous sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the perfect one, Jesus Christ our Lord, who died upon the cross in our place. And the only question now is whether the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to you whether the blood is, as it were, across that door, on your heart, whether you have received that blood of Jesus Christ, received His sacrifice by faith, whether you've turned to Him in trust and in hope, forsaking the world and the sinfulness of the world and putting all your hope in the Lamb who would take your place. And because of that, these people could sing that God has turned away His wrath and now He has brought comfort and salvation. In verse 2, the song goes on, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And verse 3, With joy you will drink water from the wells of salvation. Remember how God brought His people out of Egypt and what was the first thing that happened to them? They got out in the middle of the wilderness and they said, there's nothing to drink. He brought them into a dry and thirsty land on their journey from deliverance to rest. And they're here in this middle ground between between deliverance and rest and they're experiencing thirst. And what does the Lord do? He brings them to these bitter waters and He turns them sweet. And then he brings them to a land of a dozen springs that they may drink freely for all the people. And then in the middle of the desert when they feel like everything's lost and they have no more hope and they cannot persevere any longer to make it into the promised land, what does he do for them? He takes his, the, 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 the rod and he breaks the rock and out of that rock pours water to refresh the people. And we're reminded that for all of God's people, God pours himself out to be that fountain of our delights, that source of all our spiritual refreshing to encourage us and to lift us through our journey from deliverance to our ultimate rest in in heaven with Him. He satisfies and He gives us eternal life and out of our hearts flow rivers of healing waters that give life to the nations. And that's, of course, exactly what we see here. They bear witness, verse 4. You will say, verse 4, 
you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. So now it's not just the people saying, I will give thanks. Now the people are admonishing others to give thanks and to call upon him, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name is exalted. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This end time gathered people will be not only a transformed people, but a proclaiming people, a witnessing people proclaiming the glories of their God to the nations of the earth. That's what Isaiah foresees. That's what he envisions under the inspiration of God. We are in the midst of that great end-time exodus gathering of all people from the nations and faces of the earth. You realize that? This exodus is taking place in our day as people are brought from captivity to sin and to lawlessness into captivity to Christ. As they come under His dominion into the light of the gospel, we are seeing today exactly what Isaiah foresaw by faith all those years ago. The gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were converted to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. That little seed has grown to the place that where, as we sit here today, all nearly three billion people on the face of the planet call themselves Christians and name the name of Jesus Christ, acknowledging, at least in word, His lordship over their lives. We are seeing this incredible exodus, the streaming of the peoples from the farthest flung places on the planet into the kingdom of our Lord and of his dear Christ. One of my children who loves to root for the underdog, uh, his favorite country is Nauru. It's a small island country in the middle of the Pacific. And for generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation, I don't know how many countless generations, the people of places like Nauru sat in darkness. Today, that country is majority Protestant Christian. What we're seeing is a global exodus out of darkness and into light, and it is so sweet. You just want to get on your knees and say, Lord, more. Let there be people from every tribe and nation giving your son, the rightful king, the praise that he is due. Let more people experience the kingdom of peace that is the Lord's kingdom. The truth is, though, while there are three billion who name the name of Christ, 
the world population is over 7 billion. And there are many, many more who have yet to be brought under his lordship. So what are we to do? We're to be that proclaiming people, right? We're to proclaim and, and find and pray as, as individual Christians and as Christian families and part of this church gather that we, we look for and we pray for ways to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ expanded. Whether that means praying earnestly that God would send laborers into the harvest or giving of all that He has given to us freely that others may labor in those fields, or whether it means leaving our comfortable lives here and entering the places in the world where Christ is not acknowledged, where there are a sliver of a percent yet in the, those nations which, uh, who name the name of Christ. This is what Isaiah foresees. and We're in the middle of it. And we get to be a part of it. And it's such a joy. And then I want to just close by going back now up to verse 10. Just close with this. Because I think this is where all of this is headed. Notice how this rest is characterized back up in chapter 11, verse 10. And his rest, the Messiah's resting place, shall be what? It shall be glorious. Literally, it's just glory. His rest will be glory. That's literally the way it reads. And his rest will be glory. You want to know where all of this is ultimately pointing? Glory. It's pointing to glorification. It's pointing by using the very term that is used to describe the glory of God throughout the Old Testament. And of course, the Scripture teaches that by our natures, by sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God, that eschatological potential with which Adam was created. We have all fallen short of that glory. But in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah, we obtain the ultimate rest of glorification that will be ours one day, sharing in the glory of His eternal life, that eternal glorious rest which will be completely free from any effects of sin and the curse. And so in the end, that, that paradise that everybody longs for in their heart of hearts will be the reality across the face of this planet for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so... So shout and sing for joy, O you, inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and bless you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for all glory belongs to Him. And all glory comes through Him and through Him alone. From Him and to Him 
Through Him and to Him be all things, O Lord. And we long for the furtherance of His kingdom. We pray that You would show us how we are to be a part of it and to wait patiently for the fullness of it. We ask it in His name. Amen.